74. Psalm 74, a masquille of Asaph. And one I think for our own hearts at times, through the struggles that we go through, whatever they might be, to remember. To remember what God has said, to remember what God has done, and to continue doing that. Even while we come together as a congregation each week, that's a part of that. That as we hear the gospel again, we, we in many ways aren't hearing anything new, but we need to remember it. And we need to be brought together that we would encourage each other to the same. And so let's hear these words together again, giving attention to that inspired, infallible word, that word that God has for you tonight in his providence. Psalmist writes, O God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your inheritance in this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Turn your footsteps toward the perpetual ruins. The enemy has damaged everything within the sanctuary. Your adversaries have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They have set up their own standards for signs. It seems as if one had lifted up his axe in a forest of trees, and now all its carved work they smashed with hatchet and hammers. They have burned your sanctuary to the ground. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name. They said in their heart, let us completely subdue them. They have burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. How long, O God, will the adversary revile and the enemy spurn your name forever? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand, from within your bosom? Destroy them. Yet God is my king from of old, who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him his food for the creatures of the wilderness. You broke open springs and torrents. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also is the night. You have prepared the light and the sun. You have established all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, that the enemy has reviled and a foolish people has spurned your name. Do not deliver the soul of your turtle dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your afflicted forever. Consider the covenant. For the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the oppressed return dishonored. Let the afflicted and needy praise your name. Arise, O God. Plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you all day long. Do not forget the voice of your adversaries, the uproar of those who rise against you, which ascends continually. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, children of God called to be saints, if you think about it, most people are pretty good at remembering important things. And there are all kinds of things that we might be prone to forget, which is why we use reminders, and there's quite a business in post-it notes and various planners and calendars. But the important things we usually remember. 
That is, until we experience a, a traumatic circumstance, or when we enter into a bitter hardship, until we've suffered loss. And it's in those moments that we struggle to remember what day it is, what we've scheduled, the very basic and simple things that just need to be done. And it's in those moments not only that we're prone to forget all of those things, but also something that is far more important than anything in our planners or found in our calendars. That we can be so shaken by these circumstances in our lives that we might forget who God is, who he's revealed himself to be. We forget who we're to be in him. We become angry, impatient, and confused, and and hurt, even, even tempted to doubt and question his plan and question his goodness. And it's in those moments then that we need to be able to remember. Those things that we remember, we have to keep telling ourselves over and over again, I can't forget this. It's the same thing. That in that moment, I would be able to remember, that I would be able to hold on to my hope, that we would be able to trust him more fully. And such hope and such praise and such trust need to be remembered and expressed in our prayers to God, and testified to even in the difficult trials. And so it's the struggle of the psalmist in Psalm 74 to do just that. Because his first word in the psalm is why. Why, God? Why have you cast us off? That in the hard providences of our own life, how many times have we not said the same thing? Why? Why, God? What, what are you doing? And it's in those moments that we need to remember. To remember that he loves us. To remember that he is at work in more ways than we can see in that moment. And more that he's able to deliver us and further the glory of his name. And so tonight as we work our way through this psalm, call out to God. Father, help me to know you better. Help me to cling to that promise more fully that I would never forget your truth. We see this theme tonight. We must not forget who our God is and remember him even in times of brokenness and hardship. We must not forget who our God is and remember him even in times of brokenness and hardship. And so to do that, I want to challenge you to remember three things tonight. To remember our problem in verses 1 to 11. To remember our praise in verses 12 to 17. And then to remember our prayers in verses 18 through 23. But we remember our problem. That's in the first 11 verses. And again, remembering that the context here, that it's super hard to remember in brokenness and in hardship. And that's because in those moments of trauma, and, and perhaps you can think, back to the hardships or even to the physical traumas that you've endured. What we do is interact immediately with what we see and what we feel. That's the default setting. We focus on the appearance of our life in the now without thinking or remembering back to God's faithfulness in the past, in our experiences, and we forget our hope for the future. 
that we believe in that moment of that hard and of that hurt that what we see in the now is the problem. It is certainly a problem. But it usually gets ramped up from there. Because now what do we start saying? God has caused this problem for us. God is then the source of my problem. And you're like, none of us talks like that, right? But we do. Verse 1, Oh God, why have you rejected us forever? We do speak like this. We do think these things. Why, why have you abandoned me? Why have you tossed me aside? Why have you done so forever? That when we hurt, we can certainly overstate what's going on and for how long it's been going on. Like your children, and maybe some of you children who go to your parents and, and you claim, you never do anything for me. How, how can you say you love me? You never... Really? That isn't how it is at all. Sometimes that's how we come before the Father. Have I been cast off, Father? Have I, have I been sent to my room forever? That's the struggle. Why? And here it is a question so full of hurt, compounded by the fact of, how do I make this fit with what I believe concerning my place with him? Look again at verse 1. Why does your anger smoke, hear it, against the sheep of your pasture? We're your sheep. You're our shepherd. You're supposed to protect us. So why has this happened? You shepherded Israel throughout their wilderness wandering. The Lord is my shepherd. We say it all the time from Psalm 23. So why have you now forgotten us? And so that plead in verse 2. Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your inheritance. And so it's rich, covenantal and redemptive language here. A reminder of the language of God gathering Israel at Sinai to reveal his holiness in his way. It's a reminder of the way that God brought the twelve tribes into the land of promise by way of his word. So it's a request for God to remember, but it's also connected then to a, a request, to a plea that he would act. Remember that we're your people. Remember that you are the great kinsman redeemer who has purchased us at a great cost, at the cost of the blood of the Lamb. And yet he takes it a step further. Remember this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Which now starts to play on that relationship. Because God have you forgotten that you chose to make your dwelling among us? That for us in our hurts, we look at God saying, have you forgotten that you have chosen to make your dwelling in me? So why are you so far away? Why aren't you hearing? Why aren't you coming? Verse 3, turn your footsteps toward the perpetual ruins, towards that which is always broken, the enemy has damaged everything within the sanctuary. 
that in that hardship and struggle, we simply cry out to God to come and draw near. God, come and see the carnage in my life. Come see how broken and messed up everything is. And you could translate this as, God, lift up your steps, hurry up, move it, and come and see. Lord, you need to not only remember our problem, but you need to come and see it. Do you see it? Do you know? Verse 4, your adversaries have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They've set up their own standards for signs. God, the nations have desecrated your holy place. They've attacked like a lion pouncing on its prey. And worse than that, they've set up shop there. Setting up their bandards, setting up their standards of victory in your most holy place. As if one, verse 5, had lifted up his axe in a forest of trees. Everything fallen. Everything broken. Verse 6, And now all its carved work, they smash with hatchet and hammers. I mean, think of this in the mind of one of the people of Israel. They came into your temple and worked a terrible destruction. Don't you see? Don't you know? And it's even worse. Verse 7, They have burned your sanctuary to the ground. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name. That just over six years ago, we were made at Faith URC to know the angst of a fire. And the hurt of losing that place where, where we met with God. And, and while we don't talk about our sanctuaries as being that, in the same way as the temple, nonetheless, there, there's great connection there. That, This is where our children have been baptized and and weddings have happened and, and funerals have taken place. So how much more now here? Because the perceived problem is not just a, a fire because of an electrical issue, but that the ungodly have come down and burned it down. A people not your own have come and destroyed this place where we meet with you. And in that the nations claimed what? We have defeated God. Your God is impotent. Your God is powerless. Verse 8, they said in their heart, let us completely subdue them. There's no resistance there. They have burned all the meeting places of God in the land because the nations wanted to make Israel's pain abundantly bitter. Here's the psalmist again, amping up that struggle and that hurt. That the enemy wanted to separate them from any fellowship and any goodness of God. That they destroyed any place where they would remember it, where they would see it, where they would know it. But I want to ask you something, brothers and sisters. Was that the real problem? I mean, we see this role all through these verses. Does the psalmist get it? Has he acknowledged the true problem? Was the problem God? Was the problem the pagan nations that the Lord had ordained to raise up for such a moment as that? No. Their circumstances were not the problem. They were hard, but that wasn't the problem. 
No, the problem was believing that the Lord would have ever abandoned them in the first place. Their problem was not believing that he was at work even in hard things. Their problem was not believing that he could work great deliverance again. And that's the heart of verse 9. The hopelessness of a kind that's expressed there. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. We have no signs to read. Nothing that points us in the direction that we would go. No word to hear, no assurance of it coming to an end. The psalmist is claiming we have nothing. But if God was silent, not responding to his people in that moment, it wasn't because he had changed, but because they'd moved away from him. You charge God with not remembering you, but have you remembered him? And while we don't equate every hardship and brokenness that we endure to be a direct result of our own sin, what is the problem is when we forget that God is a great redeemer. When we forget that he is forever faithful. So yes, our experience in the moment might be hard, but the Lord is always the same. He's always the same. Verse 10, how long, O God, will the adversary revile and the enemy spurn your name forever? You see, there's gospel in that verse because there's a limit to the time. The psalmist begins in that way to remember and to wake up. There's still a limit. And so now that why in verse 11 takes a little bit of a different feel. Why do you withdraw your hand even your right hand, the hand of your power. From within your bosom, destroy them. And so the section closes with the same question of verse 1. Why are you withholding help? And so children and young people, you could think of these words in this way. We, we at my house back at home, we, we got our, our normal shipment in the spring of, of bark to spread around our landscape. Big pile in our driveway. And so imagine my chagrin as I am out there shoveling scoop after scoop of this bark if my son were to stand there with his hands in his pockets not doing anything. Well, I would look at him and say, get your hands out of your pockets and pick up a shovel already. Which, granted, he's seven, so it's not going to be much help anyway, but at least it would feel like something, right? Do something. That's here. God, take your hands out of your pockets and help us and care for us. But his hands are still there. His hand is still there. He's still powerful. He's still strong to save. He is still able. And so we're directed back to the gospel because God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If he's holding back his hand, there's a reason for it. But his hand is always there. There's always an answer. 
There is always an answer for what he is doing because he is almighty, sovereign God. So yes, we keep crying out, God, act. Please act. Do what you will. But the problem isn't God. And that problem isn't even what we see. The problem is how we see in each of these hard and broken moments. And yet that shepherd and redeemer uses them. He uses them in his grace to drive us to himself and show his faithfulness. Which in his work of grace leads us to a profession of our praise. And that in the second place we need to remember our praise. For it would seem, at least in the writing of the psalm, that there's a a pause here. That the psalmist is taking a moment for reflection. that, That in that way an aha has taken place. Like something has sparked. Because the psalmist has remembered. And by God's grace, what squeezes out in that moment is a hymn of praise. That the words that follow in verses 12 through 17 are the great is thy faithfulness lyric of that day. That in moments of hardship and brokenness, we too need to remember his praise. And there's comfort in that, isn't there? That even in the hard things that you've experienced, there's comfort to be had even in the inhale of his grace and gratefulness and in the exhale of our pain and sorrow as we give testimony to his great faithfulness, mercy, and love. And so verse 12, yet my God is my king from of old. Praise starts and always starts with remembering who God is. Remembering what he's done. Remembering what he's promised to do. He is God and king. He is creator and sovereign. And so even as we struggle with the effects of brokenness, we can rest in that. We can rest in Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us. That love is known. And that love is best known as we praise him who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth. That he is able. That he is able to do that no matter what transpires in each of our lives individually or corporately. He can and does actively work an abundant salvation for us and all of his chosen. That's our comfort. And we remember that because he did it in the past. Verse 13, you divided the sea by your strength. He brought the people through the Red Sea in a great exodus in order to deliver them. The sea, which the people looked at and believed what? That's the problem. Moses, why did you bring us here to kill us? His way was through the sea. It isn't a problem when it's placed in the hands of an almighty God. His way toward great deliverance. And by way of his power, he would not only conquer Egypt, but he would go forward to conquer the so-called gods of the nations. Continuing in verse 13, you broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him his food for the creatures of the wilderness. That the Lord worked salvation for his people in the destruction not only of nations, but also of their idols. That which they gave themselves to worship. And in so doing, in the routing of those people, provided for his own. Verse 15, you broke open springs and torrents. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Was God not able to provide food and water in the wilderness? 
even in the promise that he would provide living bread and streams of living water? Was he not able to stop the Jordan so that his people could walk through on dry ground another testimony to God's deliverance as they entered the promised land? You see, brothers and sisters, he is. He is the great Redeemer, worthy, worthy of all praise. A great Creator, worthy of the same. Verse 16, yours is the day. Yours is the night. God is faithful every day. Every time you wake up, there are new morning mercies to see. Every night that we see as God has worked his hand in faithfulness, all through that day, he is faithful and strong and kind. You have prepared the light in the sun. That even just seeing the sun and the moon are testimony enough that he hasn't abandoned us or stopped working in his power over all creation exercised in providence. For you have established all the boundaries of the earth, verse 17. You have made summer and winter. Because not only is his will fixed, but we know that such a will indeed will be worked for our good and for his glory. He's always faithful to his will. He's always faithful to his promises. That even in the sign of the rainbow, so again, flood, and deliverance by way of it, what has God promised? Genesis 8.22, while the earth remains, we're still in that remains. Seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Never. (laughs) Do we remember that? The people of God in hardship and brokenness don't forget But remember the praise of the Lord. And that isn't just, oh, pastor, that's great when life... I'm not even up here trying to tell you that your heart isn't hard. Don't let anyone say that. Everyone's hard providences and bitter providences are theirs. But he will give grace to allow you to see those moments in which he is powerful and able to bring forth praise. That's the point. They're going to work perseverance and character and hope that doesn't disappoint. And those moments will be those that bring you to a greater trust in remembering our prayers and that in the last place. Because like I've said, none of this changes the very real circumstances and crisis in the now. The heart is still hard after we remember the gospel, after we sing those songs of praise, that experience of suffering still hurts. That struggle is real, very much real. What's broken, it might still be broken. Your hurt may still seem overwhelming. But then we kneel before the Lord in prayer and we seek his help, saying, Lord, help us keep remembering. Help us. And we do desire him to work then. Not first because of us. Not even first and foremost because of what we're going through. But our eyes will move away from ourselves finally. That we would look to him. That we would look to him because of who he is. Because we desire that his name would be praised. That he would be rightly glorified. 
And so saints, remember that our prayers are to be wrapped up in the glory of God. That's verse 18. Remember this, O Lord. And again here, right? It's not about him anymore. Verse 18, remember this, O Lord, that the enemy has reviled and a foolish people has spurned your name. And so this remember connects back to verse 2, now with a different perspective and focus. That these enemies are a problem, not because of what they've done in our reality and our experience, but because of the dishonor that they bring before you. Our concern is no longer us, it is him. And in that moment, we remember that we want God to remember his honor and his exalted place. Because those people, even here in the Hebrew, you young children remember it from the Bible story, those people are Nabals, the husband of Abigail. He's a fool. These people are foolish. Their end will come. I know it. But I know God to be a good shepherd. In fact, you are my shepherd who leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For your name's sake. You are my Father in heaven, and I pray that your name would be hallowed. So our prayers will ask him to remember and act because of what is rightly due him. And that focus allows us to praise him even as we ask for deliverance. Verse 19, do not deliver the soul of your turtle dove to the wild beast. Now what the psalmist is saying here is that mine is a life precious to you. My life is chosen by you. One that has been redeemed to live an example of the peace that you so graciously give. Don't forget me. Don't forget your people because we're poor and needy. Don't forget the life of your afflicted forever. That we cry out claiming what? We claim his goodness and his glory on the basis of what? His promises and his power. But then another call to remember, verse 20. Consider where this is the same word, remember the covenant. For the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. You are a faithful covenant-keeping God. I know it. I know it. And we cry then, Father, help us remember and trust you and all of your promises. Why? Because this moment is dark. And you don't need me to remind you of that. The moments we live in, there is still darkness. The realities of sin are still real. And sometimes, Father, yes, I struggle to see you. That darkness is real. So let not, verse 21, the oppressed return dishonored. Let the afflicted and needy, what? Praise your name. So that, Father, in our discouragement... Lift us up by your work and provide for us in grace and grant us the joy of praising you even in the hard. And more than that, uphold your glory. Verse 22 and 23, arise, O God, plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you all day long. Do not forget the voice of your adversaries, the uproar of those who rise against you, which ascends 
continually. And you're like, that's it? (laughs) But it's a fitting close if we think about it. Because those hard things and those moments of brokenness or discouragement, they're going to come again. Because even you notice in the psalm, no answer is given to the why. No answer or time frame is given to the how long. But what we're granted is renewed confidence that God does remember and that we can trust him to act, that he is our shepherd, that he does meet with us, that he does direct our steps and his steps, that he does redeem and deliver and defend. He does rule sovereignly. He does rule faithfully. His name will be honored forever. And he will never forget us, and he will never forsake us. That's what we need to give ourselves in praise of the gospel of Jesus Christ in being made his own, more precious than simply turtle doves, his children. That's what we need to remember in those hard and broken moments. And that's why it's so good that we come together to remind each other of the same. Remember the sure promises of Christ that in those hard and broken moments, he's the same. And he will be the same yesterday and today and forever. He will be glorified. So brother, sister, I don't know all of your issues or problems or hurts. But we can remember that yes, those promises are real. But he is always working his glory. And he has done so for us by grace alone, through faith alone, in our faithful Savior Jesus Christ alone. Don't forget it. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the promise of your word and that reminder to us, Father, how we need it. That in our moments of discouragement and doubt, of frustration and anger, when we act as brute beasts before you, we forget that it is good to be near to you. We forget that you keep all your promises, that they are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. We forget that inheritance of the Spirit that you have placed in us. We forget all of the suffering of Jesus Christ, all of his life, all of his death, all of that poured out for us, that we would be ransomed and restored and forgiven. How could we question your love in the midst of that? But Lord, we know our brokenness and our hurts, and they're real. And so we call out to you to remember. Remember your honor. Remember your glory. Remember us. And so, Father, in those moments, remember us by way of your word. Remember us by showing us new morning mercies again. Remember us, Father, in opening our eyes at times forcibly to how good and faithful and righteous you are altogether. Father, remind us as you send brothers and sisters in Christ with those words of encouragement and admonishment and grace. Father, work your will and your gospel in us. And so, Father, may we remember all of your promises and thank you that indeed all of those promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's sing together as we respond to his word from the Trinity.